Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Are you getting frustrated with short-staffed stores and problem getting the things that you buy online because of the gaps in the supply chain? We all are, no doubt. But a column in the Washington Post this week urges us to chill a little bit and keep some perspective. We'll talk about how to do that. Then we're going to meet an author who won a free house in a Detroit neighborhood and learned an awful lot about the value of and the challenges to community in our city. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. So maybe you've noticed that buying things just isn't as fast or convenient as it was just a few months ago. And compare the way that you purchase things now and wait and wait and wait to the way the world looked before the pandemic struck. It's taking longer to get food delivered to your house. Service is a little slower at restaurants. Grocery store shelves that were once packed are all a little more sparse or just empty. And maybe you're starting to worry about holiday shopping and getting presents for your loved ones on time. These problems with supply chains and the labor market are affecting all of us. And a lot of us, well, we really aren't taking any of it very well. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger over the convenience that we've lost in our daily lives in 2021. But my first guest today says that's reflective of unrealistic expectations that we've gotten used to for decades. She says it's time for us to temper our expectations going forward. In other words, chill out a little and keep some perspective. That's where we begin the conversation today, and I'm joined by Micheline Maynard, a contributing columnist for The Washington Post, concentrating on Detroit, Michigan, and the Midwest. Her latest column is titled, Don't Rant About Short Staff Stores and Supply Chain Woes. Uh, Mickey, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you as a WDET sustaining member and a listener to the show. It's a real delight to to join you. Yes. No, it's really great to have you here. So you write that this move toward more convenience in our consumer lives goes back over 100 years. Start with giving us a bit of that history and how we've become so used to what you call this unrealistic expectation of convenience. Well, I think our listeners who've worked in manufacturing in Detroit and the suburbs and elsewhere know that literally for more than a century, the business experts have been trying to make us all more efficient. And people might know the name of Frederick Taylor, who published a book called The Principles of Scientific Management way back in 1911. And his idea was that, you know, we needed to get rid of inefficiencies and do things faster, and that if we could be more efficient and move more quickly, we could make more people happy. Mm. And so this, you know, if you fast forward through the 20s, the 30s, World War II, up into like the 1980s when people discovered, and I use that in quotation marks, the way that the Japanese automakers were supposedly more efficient. There's just been this constant pressure to speed things up. And then you add the internet on top of that and you add on one day delivery, you add on things like DoorDash, Mm. you add on the idea that you can just drive up to the door and your order will be ready for you. (laughs) And I think Americans have gotten very much used to getting things, getting what they want, exactly what they want, when they want it, and, you know, being able to move on to the next thing. Unfortunately, the pandemic has set that on its head. So I I want to talk just a little about how much this ties into 
Americanism itself. In other words, that the, the, the growth of this country, the boom of its economy, especially in the later decades of the 20th century, was about this kind of convenience and instantaneous uh, availability. But, but then I also want to talk about what's happened in the early part of the 21st century, which has seen the explosion of things like Amazon, which I, I'm always blown away right now that if I go on to Amazon in the morning and spend enough money, uh, they'll they'll deliver something in the afternoon. I mean, it's not even like you wait a day anymore. It's about hours before you get things. Uh, how much of this is about how we identify ourselves and identify our country? How much is it about how we've come to see America as this place of incredible ease and convenience? Well, absolutely. This this kind of came home to me recently when you mentioned Amazon same-day delivery. I needed batteries, and I needed them right away. I had a clock that my 93-year-old aunt relies on, and she wanted the clock fixed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, do I leave her alone to go to CVS, or do I see if I can get them today from Amazon? And I looked on Amazon, and the batteries could arrive in the afternoon, so I decided to order the batteries, and lo and behold, they were there, and I got the <laughs> clock fixed with, you know, within about eight hours, not even 12 hours. I think we are spoiled, and I don't blame anybody for wanting to be more efficient. I don't blame any of the big companies that have made us these promises because people love it. People love the idea that they just click a few keys on their phone or their computer and the things that they used to have to drive to, you know, I'm dating myself, but Northland or Eastland <laughs> or just, you know, a strip mall on Southfield, um, they don't have to do that anymore. They can get on with their lives. And I think right up until 2019 or 2020, we just assumed that that was always going to be the case. But people really don't deal very well with change. Mm -hmm. And I think during the pandemic, we have seen that in spades. Yeah. In fact, you write, uh, rather than living constantly on the verge of throwing a fit and mm -hmm. risking taking it out on overwhelmed servers, struggling shop owners, or late arriving delivery people, we do ourselves a favor by consciously lowering expectations. As I said in the open, you're saying we need to chill out just a little bit about this. Yeah. One of the people that I talked to in the article told me that somebody threw a fit because she didn't like how the gift bag looked. And it's a gift bag. You know, I think she was really surprised that someone would be that upset with a gift bag that was coming for free mm -hmm. with the purchase. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great reminder to all of us. First of all, our merchants and our restaurant owners and our business owners have gone through just an awful time. We all have, but they especially have gone through an awful time in the last 18 months or so. Some of them couldn't even operate, and then they struggled with carryout and, and curbside delivery, and now they're finally being able to be open again. And I really feel like this is a time to cut just this for the next few months into next year. Let's just cut them some slack mm -hmm. and and be a little bit flexible. But again, as I said, change is very hard for a lot of people, and they've had to change too. And I know that everyone is frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Micheline Maynard. She is a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. She concentrates on Detroit, Michigan, and the Midwest. Her latest column is titled, Don't Rant About Short Staff Stores and Supply Chain Woes. We're talking about the intolerance many of us are experiencing and that's building up in many of us as we order things online uh, or even go to stores or restaurants and get a different level of service than we're used to, of course. It's the pandemic that is causing an awful lot of this. Uh, stores are short-staffed. The supply chain is badly interrupted. Uh, that's why it's taking longer. That's why it's more difficult to get the things that we want and that we sometimes say that we need. Uh, we want to hear from you about how you're experiencing all of this. What kinds of inconveniences are you seeing in your own life when you're trying to buy something or go out to eat? Uh, how are you reacting to those inconveniences? Do you think that you are beginning to 
adjust your expectations and uh, look look forward in some ways to the the, the kinds of things that will delay uh, service uh, for you, or are you somebody who is just really at the boiling point uh, uh, over all of this? Are you snapping maybe at uh, delivery people, snapping at uh, people on the phone uh, when you're ordering? If things don't arrive in the quick time frame that we have become really used to here. Uh, in this country. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. We, we also would really love to hear from some business owners and workers during this conversation. How have the supply chain and workforce changes been affecting your business? And how are customers reacting to you? If you're working in a restaurant, if you're working in a store, uh, are you bearing the brunt of this intolerance and impatience that uh, is defining this this particular era in uh, in our country? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put uh, comments there. We'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Mickey, I want to talk about the permanence or the potential permanence of some of these changes. The, the, the stories that are being written right now about the workforce and workforce shortage really hint at a fundamental shift that has happened perhaps because of the pandemic uh, but that doesn't necessarily seem related to uh, the restrictions that the pandemic forced on all of us. I think a lot of people are really rethinking the idea of work, what role it plays in their lives, and what they're willing to do to maintain work. So if that's true and there aren't going to be endless uh, people to to fill the, sh- the staffing shortages uh, to help get the supply chain moving, uh, we really better get used to all of this because it may not go back to what we remember. I think we've been rethinking work for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. I, the ability to work from home changed the game for a lot of people, and I've actually been able to work remotely, I guess I should say, for 25 years. I was a uh, Detroit bureau chief for USA Today, and I had told my editors, if there's a newspaper strike in Detroit, I'm not crossing the picket line. There was a newspaper strike in Detroit, and I took everything home here to Ann Arbor, and I've worked, you know, some, from some offices, but mainly from home for, you know, quarter century now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I did learn when I was managing a team was that we were told 10 years ago that millennials had a different idea about work, that they wanted to live richer lives than maybe their boomer parents had lived when people worked for a company for 25 years and endured, you know, the man because they wanted the benefits and they wanted the retirement and the health care when they had retired. Um, Millennials just didn't see it that way. They saw some of their parents die young, like my father did, and they looked at it and said, you know what, I'm going to work, but I want work to sustain an enjoyable life rather than work being my life. Mm. And so that was 10 years ago. And obviously, as the millennials have gotten deeper into the workforce, and as Generation Z has come up behind them, I think people, and I don't want to just make a flat assumption that it's everybody under 45, but certainly people under 45 have looked at things a little differently than anyone over 45. So that was going on anyway. Then we got to the pandemic, and we had so many people who were laid off. In the restaurant industry alone, 11 million people and 110,000 restaurants across the country have closed. Some of them are back, but... You know, there's still many, many restaurant people who just decided, you know what, I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to try something else. And you can still have a food career, but not work in a restaurant. That's one of the interesting things about this. Mm -hmm. And so you look across business and you look at 
sort of the structure of business and the boxes that everybody was in for so long, and they thought that they that life had to be that way. And one of the things they found out working from home and during the time that they were off was it didn't have to be that way. And it was the first time a lot of people got to think about their work lives in their lifetime. And so I, I think this is a historic shift. I think this is something that we'll be teaching college classes about and that economists and historians will be writing about 10 and 15 years from now. We're just in the middle of it, and it's really uncomfortable while it's going on, and it's changed lives for so many people. And so one of the things that I think one of the questions that raises really is how do businesses adapt? Do businesses need to lower expectations, uh, maybe not just in the short term, but permanently stop promising that everything can happen instantly. Stop, uh, stop trying to make everything uber convenient for uh, consumers. Uh, if we are going to adjust our expectations, don't we need don't we need the business community to help us out? Yeah, and I don't think we're there yet. I'm not sure that the learning is there yet. That. Um you know, when you're experiencing something, it's hard to take a 50,000-foot view of it sure. because you're feeling that emotion. You're losing the sleep that night. You're looking at your watch and checking the Internet and trying to track your package, and it gets to Kentucky, and then it doesn't go any farther for four <laughs> days, you know, that kind of thing. And I think this is the real challenge because we can have anything instantly electronically So. You know, people can listen to the show on their phones. They can listen to it on their laptops or their their Amazon devices, their Echo devices. But to produce a radio show can't really be done without people doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I, I guess you could hook up your phone somehow to WDET and broadcast that way, but you really do need teams of people. So whenever you have to have a team of people doing something. This is where we need to adjust our expectations. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about short staffing and supply chain interruptions. Uh, We'll also get to your calls and your social media comments. Aaron and Jefferson Chalmers, David and Royal Oak, Marlene in Farmington Hills. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Listening to this right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you tuned in. Uh, my guest right now is Micheline Maynard, a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. She concentrates on Detroit, Michigan, and the Midwest. Her latest column is titled Don't Rant About Short Staff Stores and Supply Chain Woes. We're talking about all of the things that have interrupted our convenient lives. Uh, during the pandemic, the ways in which it's harder to get goods instantaneously. It's harder to get uh, the top-level service in stores or in restaurants because there are just fewer people working in these jobs, uh, and uh, it's just harder to get everything done than it was before. Uh, In the column, uh, Maynard says we need to adjust our expectations just a little bit, uh, stop insisting that everything be instantaneous. Uh, What do you think? Uh, How are you feeling about uh, delays in packages being delivered to your house? How are you feeling about maybe your favorite restaurant not being open as many days of the week as it normally is, or that it closes at 9 o'clock at night instead of at midnight because it doesn't have the staff that it used to? Uh, how are you responding to those changes, and uh, are you able to adjust your expectations? Also, want to hear from business owners. Uh, what are you hearing from people, your customers, 
about these changes. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you that way. Let's start today with Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, what's on your mind? Hello. I'm more concerned with the plight of people working in retail and customer service than I am about uh, a slight shipping delay or not getting exactly what I want tomorrow. I've worked in retail and customer service for years, and there's a reason so many people have quit their jobs recently, and they are just done being disrespected. I've been in that position before, and those are the people I'm concerned with, the people who have to to work in retail and what their concerns are. So, so Aaron, I, I, I would love to ha- hear you expand just a little on that, what your experience was like working in retail. What was the, the, the kind of disrespect that, that you were experiencing? Managers who don't respect you when you're doing the right thing or who curse at you for not selling enough of X. I've also read articles who people who have to work at companies, and it seems like no matter what they do, they can't win, and they're doing the best they can. They're good employees, but they're not treated with a a basic amount of respect, and Mm -hmm. I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And I I give them so much sympathy. I've been there, and life is too short for that kind of treatment. Aaron, what did you move on to from, from work in retail? I went to school again. And I worked for an automotive supplier hmm. here in Metro Detroit. Yeah, yeah, Aaron, I really appreciate the call and and your sharing your perspective and experience. Mickey, this is an example of the way that you were talking about. People are just thinking differently about their work, and in in Aaron's case, it doesn't sound pandemic related. It sounds life related. Right. Well, I worked retail, too. I worked at Jacobson's during high school and college and a little bit after college. And I've encountered pretty much every kind of customer that you can imagine. And, uh, you know, of course, you try to remember the, the really nice ones, but then you encounter a couple bad ones during the day and you go home and just wonder, is this something I want to do for the rest of my life or even for the next month? Um, obviously, People take their cues from the way they're treated by management and by owners. And if you're lucky enough to work for an owner who appreciates you, and I'm not even saying appreciates you through the wages that you receive, because I think what's being ha- what's happened is people are saying, okay, all right, you're not happy with $12 an hour, I'll pay you $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. But that's part of it, but it's also appreciating people and trying to be flexible if they have child care concerns or elder care concerns and that kind of thing. And it does slow down society a little bit when we're a little more considerate. But, you know, maybe the pace had just gotten too fast. I think all the time about the car plants and how they have the capability to run 24 hours a day. But most of the car companies that have that capability don't run them 24 hours a day because they need a break. They need a break for the machinery to sort of reset and for maintenance to be done. And so maybe we just revved up too fast, and this is kind of a natural slowdown. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Again, Aaron, really appreciate the call uh, and uh, your really uh, interesting story uh, Greek on Twitter says, honestly, when it comes to carry out, dining out, I'm now happily paying more for often worse service. In addition yeah. to price hikes, I now tip standard 20 to 30 percent because service Aww. workers are understaffed, risking grave illness for my convenience during a pandemic. Greek, you are you are approaching this in exactly uh, the right way, uh, trying to make things just a little better for the people who are trying to keep our lives uh, as convenient uh, as we as we expect them to be. Uh, let's go to David in Royal Oak. David, welcome Hi. to the program. Hello. Hi. Go ahead, David. Uh, well, um, this uh, whole thing started out on sort of one uh, track and then went to another. I have I have been in uh, retail all my life, and I absolutely agree that uh, people have always had uh, 
unrealistic expectations of people working in retail. Mm -hmm. But what's going on now with the larger uh, 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 David, your phone is uh, your phone's cracking up there. Um, call us back, and we'll get you back on uh, into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Marlene in Farmington Hills. Marlene, welcome yes. to the show. Hi, go ahead. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, Marlene. Hi. Hi. Uh, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, I agree with your uh, guest. Uh, we have way, way too high expectations. And it's okay for us to adapt because we were all forced to uh, adjust to what our environment has. And so I think it's time for us to start thinking about other people than ourselves. We've gotten so selfish that it's okay to think about the other person, what their life is like, and mm. try to regain empathy. Because mm. I'm finding people who are quitting jobs who are good people, especially like medical people, and what's going to happen when the essential workers are not going to be there? Why don't we gain some respect towards these people and show it to them? Yeah. Uh, Marlene, I really appreciate uh, your call and the sentiment you're expressing here and Mickey that that reminds me of the stories that I think I've started to see again about the difference in Americans now during a pandemic a global pandemic that uh, that has disrupted everything and Americans for instance during the second world war and what the instinct then was to do it was Sacrifice. That was what was asked of Americans then, and in large, 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 large numbers, uh, they did it. Now, uh, the pandemic is, among other things, asking us to be a little more patient with people who work in the service industry, for instance. And the reaction is, where is my, where's my package? Uh, why isn't my restaurant open? Uh, it is a much more self-focused response than I think we would like to think of the best of the American spirit. Well, I was thinking about the caller who said, you know, I'm tipping more, which I think the folks will really appreciate. But, you know, you have a point when you say menu prices have gone up I'm not getting as fast of service. You're serving me maybe on styrofoam instead of a, a china plate, that kind of thing. Why should I pay more for this? And that is a natural, natural response. Mm -hmm. I completely understand it. On the other hand, you have the ability to go to that place, and it's open. And there's so many places that have closed. We just are losing a restaurant on Saturday in Ann Arbor, the first Thai restaurant in Ann Arbor, which has been open since 1981, and they're closing on Saturday mm. um, because they just, you know, they just can't get through the pandemic anymore. So I feel like we should show empathy, but I, I do understand the natural reaction that this isn't worth it. You know, I'll take my business somewhere else. It's mm -hmm. just that when you take your business somewhere else, you find out that the somewhere else is also experiencing the same thing. Yeah. And that's where we need some leadership wherever we can find it, whether it's just from our, our local merchants, whether it's from mayors, whether it's from governors, the president, whomever, some folks to just set some, I guess, kindness and empathy mm -hmm. examples. Yeah. And hopefully people will see that and it will resonate with them. Ron on Twitter says, Amazon same day or two day shipping has conditioned us to want or receive goods that come from very far away as fast as possible when small businesses can't necessarily compete with that type of logistical infrastructure. Really good point there. Mm -hmm. Tobias on Twitter says, I believe this work shortage is a direct result of right to work. In the 50s and 60s, executive pay ratio to worker pay ratio was 50 to 1. Today, it's 400 to 1. Will unions make a comeback? Uh, Big Neo on Twitter Says, definitely not happy with stores and restaurants closing now at 9 p.m., but I'll gladly accept that if it means the citizens are in better positions to demand, to demand higher wages 
and benefits. Uh, let's go to Karen in Detroit. Karen, welcome to the show. Are you there, Karen? Yes, I'm still here. Go ahead. Go ahead, Karen. Oh, I can go ahead? Yep. Yeah, uh-huh. Go ahead. Hello? Hello, Karen. Yes. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I'm a professor that worked part-time at Menards, and I really saw a shift in the guest and in the management. Everyone's impatient and angry, and they would get mad at us because we didn't have you know, products on the shelf. And everything was slowing down, and the prices were going up. And so they would just take it out on us. And I noticed that over the last year and a half, a lot of people just walked off their jobs because they just couldn't take it anymore. Hmm. Uh, Karen, I want to start with the way you started the call, that you're a college professor who also works part-time at Menards. Uh, I think that's a pretty common situation for people to be facing. Talk about why why you felt the need to have to do that um, to maintain well, actually, that level of work. Well, actually, I retired from the city of Detroit, and when they took away our medical, I was paying 600 a month hmm. with a $7,000 deductible. Wow. And it was right. It, it just buried me. So I was teaching at two schools and working at Menards to pay off all this debt from my you know medical insurance. But after a point, it's like you, you just can't take it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Karen, I really appreciate your call and your perspective. Uh, Mickey, we've been talking about the state of work and and how it's playing into what we're seeing in terms of staff shortages and things like that. Karen's a a great example. I think one thing everyone needs to do, I mean, not only besides relax a little bit and be nice to people, but also figure out what is absolutely the most important to you. Um, Is it that your sandwich comes in 10 minutes or is it that you can place an order, you know, ahead an hour and an hour and a half. And if it just gets there, that's fine because it means you didn't have to cook that night. Um, It's kind of like we need to make a list of our priorities and take a look at it and decide, okay, what, what kind of speed is absolutely necessary in my life and where are some, places that I can, you know, can adjust a little bit. Um, One of the things that happened to people before the pandemic was that we were scheduling things every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, I I know many, many, many people in corporate jobs that would have, you know, hours in meetings or they would have back-to-back-to-back-to-backs. And when the pandemic took place and people worked from home, it wasn't as frequent. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, people have a lot of Zoom calls, but things that we're not absolutely essential kind of drop to the floor. And I think in our lives, we may need to do that for now. And I'm not saying that this is forever. I, I try to look at it as maybe a three-year thing that we're going through. My grandmother had Spanish flu. She mm. had it in the second wave of Spanish flu, and then she survived. Mm. And then there was a third wave after that. So that gives me the perspective that we're probably in the middle to maybe closer to the end of this, but we're nowhere near the end of it. So there's going to be a Christmas season, there's going to be next winter, and then maybe, you know, the sun breaks through the clouds a little bit in the spring and the summer. But, you know, life may never get back to the speed that we experienced. And so what can we personally adjust to to get used to that? Yeah. Okay, uh, Mickey Maynard, contributing columnist for the Washington Post. It was really great to have you here with us on the show. I know that, uh, as you said, you're a sustaining member at WDET and a <laughs> listener, but it's wonderful to just be able to sit and talk to you. So thanks so thank much. Thank you, and thank you to everyone who called in and for your, all your thoughtful comments, because I know this topic touches a nerve, and I know it makes people very uncomfortable, but, you know, there's a wonderful columnist named Connie Schultz who mm-hmm. says, take a minute to breathe. Yes. And I think that's especially important right now. Yes, absolutely. Great advice. Okay, we are going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to switch subjects. We're going to hear from the author of a new book about moving into a free house in Detroit's Bangletown and the complex questions her experiences brought up about her presence in that community. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. I think it's really obvious in recent years that the narratives around Detroit and what it means to live here have really been changing. What was once viewed as a scary and impoverished entity by a lot of people, especially by white suburbanites, is now increasingly becoming viewed as something new, exciting, and as enduring as a renaissance. And that has encouraged some groups of people to move to the city and experience all that it has to offer. Editor and artist Anne Elizabeth Moore got just that chance when she was awarded a free house, that's free in quotes, from a nonprofit fellowship for writers. She quickly realized that the house was, in fact, not free and began to think more critically about what her presence in Detroit's Banglatown neighborhood meant for that community. She details those experiences in her new book, Gentrifier, a Memoir. Anne Elizabeth Moore joins me now to talk about it. Anne, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here this morning. So talk about how you ended up in Detroit and the impression you had of this city before that move and just after your arrival. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I... Of course, because I had been living in Chicago for 25 years beforehand, was was much more familiar with Detroit than I let on in the book. Um, but I, you know, knew the creative community. I knew sort of the cultural scene. I even knew a little bit about the neighborhood I moved into, Banglatown, which of course was not called Banglatown at the time. Mm-hmm. But I'd spent a little bit of time there, and it, it's a beautiful, thriving, thoughtful, engaged community that I. Once I found myself in the middle of it, I was just delighted to be able to experience up front. I mean, it was really engrossing and amazing. And my neighbors were these warm, wonderful, caring, thoughtful people. Um, and I really came to love, you know, street level, um, the the kinds of things that were going down in that particular neighborhood in Detroit. So, so give us a sense of what was going on in that neighborhood and the context that brought you to it. Uh, you were one of the fellows chosen by Write a House, a, a nonprofit organization here in the city that was giving houses to writers as a way to kind of kickstart uh, cultural uh, activity and connection in these neighborhoods. Uh, tell us about what they told you they were trying to do and uh, whether you started to question that when you when you got here. Yeah, I mean, nobody accepts a free house thinking, oh, great, I have a free house now, everything is fine. Like, there's always going to be another shoe to drop. So, of course, um, the entire situation existed in this world of sort of skeptical wonder. Um, but... But the other thing I, I do want to note right away is that I don't use the name of the organization in the book. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because the organization itself is is now defunct. Mm-hmm. And another part of that is that when everyone left the organization, when all the sort of bad or, or um, <clears throat> unengaged players left, um, there was one person that sort of maintained a presence with the organization and actually now the organization exists in her name only. And if she does something with the organization in the future, I do want to make clear that it will probably be amazing. She's a really thoughtful, engaged community leader. And um, and I have every hope that she that she alone could sort of implement something under the Rita House name that would be totally worth engaging with. Mm. Um, but but it is true that, you know, as I lived there and as the organization itself started to fall apart, you know, around around me, like I'm standing, I'm the one standing in the middle of the Coliseum as it's crumbling down or whatever. Um, and, you know, my fellow Rita House winners and I were, were really very um, in conversation about how that was affecting us on a daily basis and how it was affecting the organization and particularly how it was affecting the, the fourth named winner of the of Rita House um, and her 
ultimate inability to actually receive a house. I mean, all of this was very, you know, it came up very quickly and it was very sad and it was very frustrating to, to see an organization make promises about supporting artists and supporting the city that it sort of didn't even bother upholding, you know, within months. Mm-hmm. And so in the neighborhood where you received a house, how did that part, that dimension of the story, I guess, affect your interactions with the community, with, with your neighbors? Well, I mean, I, you know, was living in a, a majority uh, Bangladeshi community um, that had a, a large number of Yemeni residents as well, um, and a couple of other um, recipients of free houses from the organization, and a couple of um, white and black artists that were living in the area. Um, but my section of that neighborhood was the uh, right next to the Davison. And so I was really on the on the sort of far end, entirely surrounded by Bangladeshi families who who just um, were, were welcoming and loving and caring mm-hmm. from the get-go. And so there was no transition. And I'd also, I'd sort of lived in South and Southeast Asian communities in the past. And so I was familiar with some of um, the less... Um, <clears throat> some of the less obvious cultural um, things that I could do to, to try to fit in better. Um, and so it was a fairly smooth transition from being like white girl coming from, you know, the bigger city um, to being like, um, you know, s- someone who could be a community resource who could actually sort of engage with, um, you know, both the young people and the older people and the people my age um, and try to find a way to participate in the Bangladeshi community that was there. Mm. And you, you call the book Gentrifier, and you have some pretty complex feelings about how that word fits into your experience in Detroit. It's a word that gets used a lot right now to describe some of the changes that we're experiencing in Detroit. I, there are some places, I think, it's appropriately applied. There are some other places where it's kind of a stretch. Um, but but tell me what you mean by that term and why you apply it in, in this situation. Well, for one thing, you know, the book does fit into these uh, narratives of white folks, particularly, who move to Detroit and they decide to buy a very cheap house and they fix it up and, and they... Their, their stories sort of tell um, about a time and a place that is unique in the world and a project that is unique in the world. But, but those stories also fit into a larger narrative of colonialism, of mm. colonialist literature. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to find a way to mark immediately that my book uh, saw its, understood that it fit into that framework. Um, but it is true that, that the term gentrifier, you, uh, you sort of develop a, a different, your relationship to that term changes over the course of the book. Because, um, and I should also mention that the book is really funny. And so like a lot of the like big revelations happen through the exchange of jokes. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, al- always within moments of cultural clash, there's, there's humor. And so... Gentrifier, you know, I was sort of accused of being a gentrifier when I received a free house in Detroit. Um, but in fact, the what the organization had asked me to do was participate in, in a project of like neighborhood sustainability. Because at the time, people in my neighborhood, on my block in particular, were just picking up and leaving. They were moving to Warren or they were moving to the uh, Brooklyn, uh, the Bangladeshi part of Brooklyn every week. And so houses were just being you know, emptied out. And this became a real problem for my neighbors because, you know, nobody can afford security systems. And also the security systems that do operate in Detroit are horrible and you should never, ever, ever participate in them. But but there was like, the city was emptying out so quickly that there was 
danger that there would be nobody actually in the neighborhood to watch a house in case a family had to go to a wedding for a couple of days. And so, you know, the idea that people were more likely to pick up and leave the neighborhood than they were to invest and engage in it was central to why I was brought there. And, um, and I took that very, very seriously. And that's a little bit of the opposite of what we think about as gentrification. Mm. But then as the story moves on and we learn more about the history of uh, the Detroit's property tax foreclosure um, system and its gross mismanagement and the several, um, you know, kerfuffles uh, that occur that drive families from homes that they've owned for years over very, very, very small amounts of money. Um, we come to understand that my house had a horrible history mm. in which one woman in particular was wronged by the city. And in that case, then your relationship to the term gentrifier hardens a little. All of a sudden then, we've given a free house to a white woman in the city of Detroit mm. that was taken from someone else. Mm -hmm. And that itself is what gentrification is about. Mm. Is about. Well, and, and digging into, for instance, the history of the house that way is something that I think too many people who come to our city as newcomers. And look, I'm all about uh, people moving to Detroit. We need more people here. I, I, I love the idea of of new Detroiters. But I, I do think there is something about digging into where you are and where you've settled uh, that, that gives you a, an important perspective about your role and your place in the city and the, the things you may be called to do or not do. Um, and I just don't think that that's everybody's, it's not everybody's instinct. Yeah. I mean, it, um, this book would not have been written by someone who is not an investigative reporter, you know, like it's really like yeah, a unique, um, I think line of, um, inquiry that I took on in this project. Um, but, but I, I agree with you completely that, you know, to get to know, um, the the history of the place that you live and the the immediate history of the actual physical structure that okay. you're devoted to every day is absolutely central. I mean, I think of it uh, sort of bacteriologically. I think of it as a, a microbial environment that those things that happened in the past, they continue to affect you in ways that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, in this case, it ended up being um, too too damaging, too difficult. Um, and so I did end up, you know, leaving after um, sort of a multi-year legal battle. Um, I did end up selling the house, returning the that particular house to a Bangladeshi family and, um, you know, left left that community mm. not that i don't talk to those people on a pretty regular basis <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah i was gonna ask what your relationship is to the neighborhood as you said you sold the house but do you still yeah. connect i guess with the area where it where it was yeah i mean the book tells um largely focuses on two of my neighbors um nishat and sadia who are young women in Detroit, um, Bangladeshi, very good friends. Sadia is slightly older than Nishat, but absolutely some of the most like brilliant young women I've ever met in my life in the world. And um, I was really lucky that they sort of befriended me quickly. They just kind of took me in and we, you know, began exploring the neighborhood together. And, um, and of course, now they're on Instagram and now they're like, you know, have thousands of followers <laughs> and they're very popular <laughs> and they have these vast social media presences. And um, and so we communicate that way yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, but I've only been back. I haven't been back since I finished writing the book. So once the pandemic ends, uh, ends I uh, will be able to go back and 
and sort of check in with everyone in person, which is, you know, the, the easiest way to get to know a community, of course, if not the only way. Sure. Okay. Uh, Anne Elizabeth Moore, author of the new book, Gentrifier, a memoir. It was really great to have you here uh, on Detroit Today to talk about your experience. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with water quality and affordability experts and residents about the crisis happening right now in Benton Harbor on the other side of our state. If you don't know, uh, they have a water crisis there that some people have described as more acute than the problems that we saw in Flint. Uh, We will also talk about efforts to resurrect Michigan's only historically black college right here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Have a great day, and we'll talk again tomorrow.